All right. Are you ready? Um, I think it would be fun to just start, before we get into uh, the teaching, I just want to share with you what I, I think is probably one of the funniest pictures that was on the internet this week. And um, <laughs> did, did anybody else see this picture? So I, the, the one that I saw, somebody, somebody wrote, helps on the way, y'all. And uh, so I was looking, it's really funny. It's really, really funny. As a born and bred native of Atlanta, I can laugh at that. But if, the funny thing about the photo is, like, it's not in America. Like, if you look at the photo very closely, the, the language on the sign on the fence is in some other language, and all the cars have foreign plates. So um, props to the, the Photoshopper who did this, but it's still, it's still funny, is it not? Um, <laughs> so was it Tuesday that the... The world ended. Was it Tuesday? Um, yeah, Kyle and I were here, and it was around 1130, and um, the, the school system that my son is a part of, the Atlanta public school system, tweeted out, we're dismissing at 130. I was like, oh, that's cool. So I texted my mom, who picks up my son every day and has our two-year-old as well, and she picks up all these other kids, too, from various schools. It's kind of a, she's kind of a rogue bus driver with her own business. But uh, so I said, well, they're, they're dismissing at 1.30, so you might want to, she's like, got it. So she went and got her son, and it took her three hours from Sutton Middle School here in Buckhead to get to our condo here in Buckhead. It's crazy. But the, the funny part of the story is Kyle and I, it was like 11.30, the snow started coming down, and we were like, yay, because we're from the south. And so let's go eat lunch. Let's do it. Let's eat lunch. Let's eat lunch while it's snowing. And we both took our own cars, and we pulled out of the parking lot, and uh, we started to head towards Jason's Deli. And we just sat there. And we just sat there. So I texted him um, on Siri. I didn't really text and drive. Um, That's a lie. I did text and drive. But I just just wanted you to know that I had the option. Um, But I texted him. I said, you know what? I'm just going to go home because this is not... We're not going anywhere. And he's like, good call. So we just we went on home. Um, so three hours later, my son gets home. My, my wife, luckily, rode the train home. Uh, so that, that worked out well. But if you're new to the South, welcome. Like, <laughs> this is how it works. You know, like, we've all... The thing about it, though, is um, it doesn't bother me, you know, because it's just, it's just the way it's always been. It's not any different than it was in the 70s when I was a little kid. But... Um, but at least the rest of the country and their commentary on what was happening here, at least they were nice about it to us, right? At least they were very friendly and loving and merciful about how things were going on down here. Now, I get most of my news from John Stewart, um, which means that it, the world's kind of funny to me and also a little bit skewed, and yet there's some truth in there too. And he did a whole bit on the whole Atlanta, like two inches of snow thing, and 90% of it was really, really funny. But they always do this bit when they start talking about the South, like, for some reason, it always goes to, like, it's not enough, really, we get stuck in the city paralyzes in two inches of snow, that's funny enough, but the, they have to add, like, we're dumb Southerners who were racist and Bible-thumping, and this all has to do with the book of Revelation, like, what? So I'm watching, and I'm laughing, and then I'm not laughing, because I'm from here, you know how you do, like, if you're from Boston, I'm like, let me just tell you something about Boston, you're going to get mad, Right? And uh, so I'm just like, what are they talking about? So then I get this thing. I want to like, I want to do something substantial about this. I want to say something on Facebook, you know, like, uh, (laughs) 
You know how you do it. It's the only outlet we have. Like, we think we're powerful, but if you really hear what I just said, like, we're totally helpless, you know. I'm going to say something. Uh, there, I feel better. But, um, so I thought that'd be a good lead-in just to talk about mercy, the, the, the behavior of mercy between people. And, um, but yeah, so I just thought, is the photo still up there? Let's just look at it one more time, just because it's just... <laughs> I want that car, actually. So, all right, y'all ready? Um, sure, we're ready. Ready. Thank you. Here we go. So we've been in this series of teachings um, over the last. This is our fifth Sunday, and it's eight weeks long. So at the end of this month, we'll be we finished. But we've been looking at the eight statements that Jesus made that all began with the word "blessed." And uh, today's is interesting, and, and it's on the screen for you here. It just says, "Blessed are the merciful." For they shall receive what? Mercy. As we've done, let's just read this together. Here we go. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, a couple things before we get into this. On the surface, uh, one, on the surface, it's a very simple teaching of Jesus. There's nothing really that complicated about what you're looking at on the screen. I mean, you don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know the history surrounding the times in which Jesus said these words. You don't have to know any of that. Like, it's a very, very, very simple teaching. I mean, Jesus simply says, be merciful. There's a blessing in the mercy that you give. There's a blessing in being merciful. Now, the only part that might be tricky, and we'll look at this at the end just to keep you awake here, but the part at the end of this teaching that the merciful shall receive mercy, that's a little odd. And we'll, we'll deal with that in a moment. And it is kind of scary. Like, it's like, so you don't get mercy if, you don't, if you're not merciful? Well, we'll just deal with that in a few minutes or 30 minutes. But um, we'll get there. But the teaching itself as a whole doesn't require a lot of, you know, it doesn't require a lot to understand it. It's pretty simple. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, the thing about this is that Jesus says there is a blessing in being merciful. There's a blessing in the behavior of mercy between people, right? And so we're going to look at that just for a minute and, and unpack what that is. And I think that what, the, what Jesus is pushing towards us in terms of mercy being a blessing, like if we're merciful, we're blessed in that, there's something very profound going on here. Now, for starters... Um, I want to show you Exodus uh, 34, verse 6. And it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and what? Faithfulness. All right? The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and faithfulness. Now this is, by all arguments, the central passage both in the Old Testament, and it makes its way into the New Testament as well, or at least alluded to and talked about and built around. This is the central text about the character of God. I mean, it's right there in front of you. The Lord is what? Merciful. So the, the description we get of God here in this text is that He is merciful. He is also gracious. Uh, if we don't understand that, it kind of amplifies it for us. He's slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. That's a compound word, but in Hebrew it's the word chesed, which is a sort of a Hebrew version of the concept of grace. Like it doesn't go away. You can't, you can't 
extinguish grace. It's the frustration of grace. It's always there. It's always forgiving. It's always loving. And then it ends with in faithfulness. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This one verse laces its way through the story of the Bible from beginning to end. Psalm 103 also says it, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Now Jonah, if you know the story of Jonah, Jonah says this too, but Jonah uses it in a different way. Jonah uses it as an indictment on who God is. See, Jonah's really upset. Like, if you don't know the story of Jonah, Jonah was called by God to go to the city of Nineveh, which is in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and he needed to go to Nineveh and essentially help turn this town around. It was a very sort of messed-up community. Um, Jonah, when called by God to do this, didn't want to do it because Jonah hated these people. There's no way that God could love these people, is what Jonah's thinking. And so Jonah does what we all do when God calls us. He leaves. He flees. He gets on a ship, and he goes to a, or he's heading for a place called Tarshish. And so he's, he's out. He gets called by God to go to the city he doesn't want to go to because there's no way that God can love those people. So he's like, I'm leaving. I'm getting on a boat. I'm out of here, right? He's leaving. Well, he ends up back in Nineveh, as you, if you may or may not know the story. He ends up back in Nineveh, and he does what God tells him to do. And the miracle in the story of Jonah is that the town, the city of Nineveh, actually turns. It, the people actually change. And it doesn't, it doesn't sit well with Jonah. He's really upset about it. He would rather watch the city burn instead of all these nice, these, uh, these terrible people becoming changed people. He didn't want to see that. And so he says these words to God uh, in chapter 4. He says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and what? Merciful. And then he, here it is, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And then he adds, and relenting from disaster. So Jonah actually uses it against God. This is the whole reason I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because I know that your mercy wins. And it's not what I want for these people. And so, just in these Old Testament texts, we see that this is the central character of who, this is the central part of God's character. It's who God is. He is a merciful person. He abounds in love, steadfast love, and so on. And so when you're talking about mercy, there is this element of forgiveness. It's not all the way to this thing of grace, because grace is this thing that takes our place, but mercy is this thing that we can extend to people when there's failure, when there's struggle. Um, Franciscan monk Richard Rohr says it this way. He says, mercy is the way to describe the mystery of what? Forgiveness. So when we're trying to describe the mystery that forgiveness is, mercy is a good way to get there. He says, more than uh, a description of something God does now and then, it is who God is. This is who God is. Jesus said this, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's a very interesting statement. It's from the Old Testament, but it comes on the end of an experience that you may or may not know that happened in Jesus' life. He recruits Matthew to be a disciple, to be one of his students. Matthew is a Jew, also a tax collector. Therefore, everybody hated him. I mean, essentially, he's in bed with Rome, and he's stealing from his own people to make a living. He may or may not be very wealthy. We don't know. So, but Jesus, 
invites him to be a disciple. This is, only Jesus would do this, right? Jesus goes to the tax collector who is a Jew and everybody hates him and says, come on, we're going to change the world. And he pulls him onto his team. So Matthew, as a way of saying thanks, throws a party for Jesus and his friends. Who are Matthew's friends? A bunch of other crooked tax collectors. And so they have this get-together, this dinner party. And Jesus gets questioned. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors? And he has a little riff here and there about that. And then he closes with this. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What does this mean? It means that it's very easy for us, if you're a Christian, to get to the point where our Christian beliefs are more important than the actions of mercy that must go along with our beliefs. So it's very easy to fall out of balance. You can go the other way too. You can be like all justice oriented but no faith, or you can be all faith and no justice, or all faith and no mercy. And when these words were first spoken in the Old Testament, the community of Israel had gotten to this place where it was all about the religious observances, observances, and less about the mercy. And so God becomes angry in the moment and says, look, really, I'd rather see mercy than sacrifice. Because mercy is sort of the outpouring of your faith. Mercy should be the direct result of your faith. Sacrifice, religious observances, worship services, going to church, being in Bible studies, serving on a team, those are all great. But if it's not, if mercy is not a companion in your relationships, then it's a problem. I would rather see mercy than sacrifice. And so this blessing that Jesus talks about, blessed of the merciful, there's some sort of blessing when mercy leads in all of our relationships with people in our home, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our friends, and most importantly, even our enemies. Like when mercy leads in all those relationships, there's some sort of, some sort of blessing. What does mercy mean? Here's a definition for you. It's sort of a working definition. The word is ilios. Say ilios. It's a great word. Mercy is not the same thing as tolerance or simply being nice. I mean, those are there. I mean, a merciful person tolerates a lot, okay? Uh, a nice person tolerates a lot. But it's not just that. It's not the same thing as that. But mercy is shaped by the acts of love, compassion, and sympathetic grace to those who are what? Struggling. And it should say and or, but and or towards those who have failed morally. So when the Bible talks about the mercy of God and also the mercy that we are to give one another, it's one and the same. That God's mercy is on us when we're struggling and suffering. Like he's not, I told you so, I told you so, he's not doing that. And when we have failed morally and spiritually, his mercy is there. Mercy when the scriptures talk about mercy and the mercy of God and the mercy between people, it's about these two things primarily. We're showing mercy to those who are in great distress and struggle, but we're also showing mercy to those who have failed morally. So mercy has to do with how we respond to people's struggles, whatever they may be, and how we respond to their spiritual and moral failings. Does that make sense? Now, mercy, the hard thing about this is that mercy is not fair, nor is it cheap, 
And it's not very natural. We think it's natural. It's more natural to want mercy. It's less natural for us to give mercy. And so when, which is an interesting thing. Mercy, when we're struggling morally, spiritually, or we're just in another sort of struggle, or we failed, mercy seems like the most logical thing for us. But when we're not failing, when we're kind of in a good place and the people around us are falling apart, mercy doesn't seem very logical. It also doesn't seem very fair. Mercy is not very fair. Because mercy comes in and gives room for failure. It lifts people out of their struggles. And it doesn't seem very fair because we kind of think that people deserve what they get. And we think that, if we're Christians sometimes, we think that people deserve what God's going to give them. Like, God's going to give them what they deserve. And so we kind of see mercy as well as this thing that feels unfair in real life. And the thing about that is that that's very true. It's not fair. And the thing about fairness is that it's not a biblical value, which is a terrible thing to hear, isn't it? I mean, when you read through the Bible, fairness isn't a thing that is all that much of a concern for God. But mercy and grace, justice, those are concerns of God. But fairness, which is simply everybody gets what they deserve, it's not a biblical value. So it's frustrating. And the Bible's response to our frustration with the fact that fairness isn't a biblical value and that mercy is not very fair considering the circumstances, the Bible's response basically is, I don't care. Mercy is the thing you choose. Mercy is the way to go. And it's not fair, it's not cheap, and it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel very natural. We'd rather see people get what they deserve. Now, a couple stories to maybe help illustrate this a little bit. Um, in terms of people's struggles and so on, like how do you show mercy or whatever, I was thinking about this uh, the other day. When I was in high school, I went to the national championships in cross country. I know. Um, <laughs> things change. That's why I don't go to reunions. Um, but it was really fun. It was hard to get there. And there were four of us there, three of us that knew each other pretty well. And we got to the national championships, which was really, really cool because all these people from around the country, I mean, this is pre-Facebook, pre-anything. I mean, it's just, we just live life, put quarters in the phone machine. And that's how you did it. Um, but we go to nationals and there's all these people from all over the country, which was very fun because we're learning about different places, right? And like, they would be the person from, uh, Colorado there with the letter jacket that's got the cross-country logo, but also a skier on their jacket. We're like, whoa! Because, you know, down here, it's just football, baseball, soccer, you know, the big four, right? Uh, there's another one in there somewhere. But that was it. Or, like, they were from California, and they were on the surfing team or whatever, and it was, like, so cool, you know, for us, and um, whatever. So that was fun. But the other fun part was that the way it was structured was you got to watch all these races all day long, and ours was kind of, you know, in the middle of the day. So we watched all these races happen. And it's the best of the best of the best all there. And each race, maybe hundreds, maybe 300 contestants per race. And the way it worked was they all lined us up about three deep all the way across this field. And it was a downhill start. And you had about a quarter of a mile to get to this trail that went into the woods really bad planning because the gun goes off and essentially 300 people are like thinking uh first one to get to the woods will win this race because once you get there you kind of have an advantage but if you get left behind in this first part sorry dude 
right? So the gun would go off, and you would watch, like, people just running, like, 30 miles an hour, you know, to get to the, to the woods. And we saw two or three situations where people got trampled. These ambulances would come in and pick up these runners. Because I don't know if you know much about cross-country, but the spikes on the shoes, when that goes through your skin, that hurts a little bit. I mean, it's not comfortable. And he's, you know, the, the, the gun would go off and it sounded like horses and then the dust would clear and a guy would sit up and there'd just be blood all over him. It was terrible. And so, you know, as a 16, 17-year-old, we're like, man, that could happen to me. I'm not letting that happen to me. And so we, it's our turn, right? It's our turn. It's my friend from high school and this other guy, I can't remember his name, we'll just call him John, but John uh, ran with us at all these other races around town and we kind of, you know, we knew him enough to where we all stood together and the gun goes off, and we're running. It's myself, this guy that I made up his name, and then my friend from high school. Well, about halfway down the hill, John starts to fall forward. And we're thinking, that's great. That's one less guy that you know, I have to beat now, right? But no, he starts to fall, and it was really strange because myself and the, my friend on the other side, we instinctively just grabbed his arms, and we drug him for about 15 feet until he got back up on his feet right? It was weird, because it was like this act of mercy, you know, it was like, what am I thinking? Like, this guy's good, I mean, trip him, get him out of here, right? But he starts to fall, and we pick him up, and we drag him 15 feet or so, and he gets back on his feet, but there was almost this kind of understood, like, you know you're going to have to finish just behind me now, right? Because <laughs> I saved your life, right? You're, you're going to have to let me, you know, get up front, right? But the thing about, and it's just a simple story, but when someone is starting to fail, when we help them with, with no regard for how that's going to impact us in the end, that's mercy, right? We get to the point where mercy becomes instinctive like that. It, it is counterintuitive, and it is often to our detriment that we are merciful. Because when we are merciful, people will take advantage of that. But again, the Bible says, I don't care. Mercy is the way you go. Even if it causes you to lose, you be merciful. Now, when it comes to spiritual stuff, I don't know what it is, but just because I do what I do, people feel like they can just tell me things, which is fine. It, it has become a part of my job that I like, not because I want to hear stuff about your life. I mean, I do want to hear stuff about your life. Don't hear me wrong. Not because I want to hear about all the difficult things that are going on in your life, that I want to see you go through that. But I have had to learn over the last 20 years to like learn what it means to be a pastor in those situations. But just because of what I do, I think people just like, they just tell you what they, what's going on. And it's okay. It, just, it shocked me at first. You know, these people would come into your office or whatever, and you've known them. They're older, they're twice your age, and you look up to them and they say, can I shut the door? And you're like, uh, yeah. And then they, you know, and they say, well, this is what's going on. And you're like, oh my gosh. You? That? And you, you're sort of stuck with this like, do I, do I trust you? Do I, what do I do now? That's really big information. And I think people just feel like they can do that, and that's fine. But sometimes it's funny, uh, and I, I think I've shared this story before, but I'm just going to do it again because it's just, it's perfect. 
uh, for this situation because it just illustrates this. But we had a copy guy, a salesman here. Great job, right? He's showing us like color charts, printing out really amazing things for us. Like it's like a sideshow. We're like, whoa! I know we're about to spend money, right? But he's got all this stuff out. And he's, but in the course of him being here, he was like, he doesn't really like his job. He's about 25, so it's really a bad situation. Like you just, you're just starting, you know. And he didn't like his job, but he's telling us about. But showing us the copy machine. But there's this part in the meeting where he says. Uh, we have to do something. We have to pull up our numbers from the other lease that we have or whatever. I don't even know. But he sits down, and we used to have a couch by there. He sits down on the couch. And he's been here for about like 30 minutes or so. And there's like this, uh, like this 30 seconds of like nothing. Nobody's saying anything. And then he says, so, uh, so I'm living with my girlfriend. And Lindsay and I look at each other like, what is happening? Like, what is, what is happening, you know? And I don't know if he just felt like, well, since I'm in the building, um, and my parents have really been on me about this, and I'm, there's a little bit of guilt, so I'm just going to tell these guys because they're people of the cloth, you know? And so he just he tells us this story. Like, and we don't even know what to say. We're just like, oh, me, of course. I'm like, where do you guys live? Like, you like your space, you know, like, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, just, I think people just, I, I don't know if he left that day and just thought, man, confession is really good for the soul, you know, like, but he doesn't even know me, but he just felt like he could just say that, he had to say that, I don't know, maybe on the way here, he was like, this is a church, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to say something, you know, I don't know if he felt that way or not, but here's the thing, like, it doesn't, it's fine, it doesn't bother us, in fact, it's what we do, but What's interesting when you read the scriptures is that my role in life, the lead pastor of a church in a city, is not even in the Bible. It's a new thing. What is in the Bible are shepherds and elders and servants of the church and just the community itself, but I don't exist in there. I'm an add-on in church history. But what, what does exist, this is so interesting, what does exist is this phrase describing the church community where Peter says, You are a priesthood of all believers. And what does a priest do? A priest is this advocate between us and God, carrying the weight of struggle and sin, advocating, encouraging, and being merciful. Like, yeah, I do what I do, and people tell me a lot of things, but... The church itself, like this room full of people in all of first service, we're kind of called to become that kind of person for everyone, that we share the role of being merciful to others. And it's hard to do. It's very hard to do. John Stott said this, the world prefers to insulate itself against the pains and calamities of men. It finds revenge what? Delicious. And forgiveness by comparison, tame. It's true, isn't it? It's much more fun to be revenge, like to be vengeful, and to, and to taste revenge. It tastes much better. But forgiveness by comparison, he says, is, is very tame. It's very, very tame. But Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. What does that mean? What does it mean that you shall receive mercy if you are merciful? It's very, it's very scary. And perhaps there's some fear in this. Perhaps there is a piece of this where we must listen to this in all, like in a very sober manner. Like, okay, if I'm not merciful, does that impact God's mercy on me? Or is this about no one else will be merciful to me? For sure. Most people who are overtly unmerciful, they don't receive a lot of mercy, right? And so that may be happening as well in this. Perhaps there is a piece that we should be, again, very sober about. We're thinking about our relationship with God. Perhaps Jesus is saying this, but he doesn't describe it. He just says it. I love this about Jesus. It's like, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Out. We're gone. Let them deal with that. Let them struggle with that for the next 2,000 years. And here we are today. Like, what does that mean? Well, I know that at least a portion of it means this. If we are merciful, and if that behavior in our relationships is growing and developing, and if we understand what it means to be merciful in terms of God's mercy and then his call on us to be merciful, if, if we're practicing mercy in our relationships, then we will recognize mercy better when it's given to us. Okay? Whether it's from other people or from God. We'll recognize it better. If we're merciful, we kind of know the game. We know what it feels like to receive mercy as well as give it. In other words, because we're involved in being merciful to others, we understand how it works, and we can smell it when it's coming our way. And when we're going through struggles, whether it's just personal and life, everyday life struggles, or we're failing spiritually and morally, we'll, we'll know it when it's coming our way. We'll recognize mercy when it's coming towards us. So part of this is just about recognition. Being merciful helps us receive mercy because we know we can recognize it. But Jesus said something very similar about prayer and forgiveness. He said, if you forgive, uh, you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. It's another very, very scary phrase. But again, what is he talking about? Perhaps they're one and the same. It's this, if I cease to practice mercy, I'll shut down any recognition of what mercy looks like. And I won't be able to receive it because A, I won't recognize it, and B, it won't make any sense to me. The most miserable Christians I know are those who are not merciful. And here's why. Because they don't even recognize God's mercy. It's the saddest thing. I mean, if, if, if a Christian ceases to be merciful in their life, they will slowly but surely, and promise you this, cease to recognize God's mercy. And God's mercy becomes offensive to them. Like Jonah, there's no way you would love those people. There's no way. So crazy that he would quote God's very words. This is why I didn't want to go there, because I know that you are loving and gracious and merciful. When we cease to be merciful, we don't even recognize God's mercy. And so there's this spiritual component, too, where Jesus is just simply saying, hey, look, it's this simple. If you cease to be merciful, good luck with that. Because that only goes one direction. A shriveled up faith 
a dried out relationship with God. And relationally, nobody likes you. I mean, right? If, I, if, if we just had to take a poll, like name the top five most unmerciful people in your life, it's not going to be hard for you. It might be your mom or your dad or your boss or your coworker or your neighbor or your spouse. I mean, I don't know. It could be all of those people, which if it is, wow. But that would be very terrible. Um, restart. But, but you see what's happening here is Jesus is also just saying relationally it works that way. You're not going to receive it if you're not giving it. The brother of Jesus, James, wrote these words, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. It's very scary. Mercy triumphs over what? Judgment. I want to close by reading this whole passage to you. We'll just leave the ending verse on the screen so you can piece this together as you listen to the words of James. And all of these Beatitudes can find their amplification in James's book, in this New Testament letter. You can just hear each one of these eight sort of ring out. And uh, this one is no exception. And we'll close with this. In chapter 2, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord of glory. For if a man is wearing a gold ring and fine clothing and he comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and you pay attention to the one who is wearing fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen the poor in the world. Does this sound familiar? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Has God not chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the loyal role found in Scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. It gets heavy right here. Hang on. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. As if to say, you're, you're messed up too. This is, what, this is essentially what he's saying. We're all, we're all kind of in need of mercy. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty for judgment without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus hung on the cross, disarmed, not fighting back because mercy triumphs over judgment. As we take communion just now, in just a moment, when you eat the bread and you drink the juice, you're reminded that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's an amen, by the way. Because you don't want want judgment to triumph over mercy. That's terrible. 
mercy wins over judgment. So as you take the bread and the juice today, remember that. I'm going to pray, and then when I'm finished praying, you can make your way to one of the four tables in the room. The bread and the juice is there, and you can take it there. You can take it back to your seat, and we'll uh, and then we'll sing a song at the end. Let me pray for you, and then you can make your way to one of the four tables. God, thank you for this teaching, and God, help us to be merciful uh, as a church family, as individuals who make up this church family. God, there are people in our lives that are hard to be merciful towards. There are people that, in an earthly sense, deserve what they have coming. You know, that's that's how we see it. But God, even uh, even if it's a detriment, you're calling us to be merciful. And in doing so, we learn just a little bit about your grace and mercy and how hard that must have been for Jesus to hang on the cross, disarmed, quiet, willingly. And so, Father, as we take the bread and the juice uh, in just a few minutes, I pray that you encourage us with this truth that Mercy wins over judgment. It triumphs. Help help us to get through the week with that truth. But help us to want to do that in the lives of others too. So I pray that you bless the bread and the juice in this time as a congregation as we take part in this ancient tradition together. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.